Everybody at the same time on Christmas weekend, delighted that God is so at work in your soul that you want to be here to give yourself to sitting under the announcement, the good news of his word. We try to do this every single week of our lives together. We need the spirit. We need the word. The spirit works through the word. And so we give ourselves to it. Um, I get the opportunity to preach the gospel to you today. So let's press in and do that together. In his grace, in his love for us, the Father has given us a tapestry of beautiful texts texts about the story of the birth of Christ. We hear these texts over and over and over again at Christmas time. You know them. We have Mary, the virgin, receiving a visit from an angel announcing to her that she's going to have a baby and and he will sit on David's throne and save his people from their sins. We read about her beautiful response. We read about Joseph hearing the news about Mary and then being talked off the ledge by another angel calling him to stick with her, stay committed to her, see this through. Name the baby Jesus. We read the story about Mary and Elizabeth, both pregnant, eating ice cream, celebrating together. Jesus and John, who are coming, surprisingly, to both of them. We know the story about the census to be taken. Everyone has to go back to their hometown to be counted. Joseph, pregnant Mary, traveling from Nazareth in the north to Bethlehem in the south. She gives birth outside, maybe, maybe in a, in a stable, a barn. We're not totally sure. Out back of an inn where there was no room. We know the text of the shepherds, despised, marginalized, dirty men, surprised by an announcement of the birth of the Christ. And of course, the wise men traveling from afar, bearing gifts for the baby Jesus. We know these texts. We love these texts. We sing these texts. We will be singing them together today. We celebrate in these texts, and rightfully so. But then there's this other Christmas text. It's the one that recounts a darker part of this story. It's the text that we don't hear too much about. We don't sing too much about. It's the one that probably didn't make anyone's Christmas cards this year. This is the text about King Herod's slaughter of children in Bethlehem. We don't usually think to preach that one at Christmas. Usually we push that one to the side. I've been reading through a book called Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. It's 20 or 22 essays written by theologians, pastors, writers, covering the full gamut of the birth of Christ. Not one of those essays was about Herod and the children. Grace and Julia and Callie put up our nativity scene at home. The thing is great. You'd love it. I took a good long look at that nativity scene and I was reminded of who ends up in those scenes. Mary, Joseph, the baby Jesus, the animals, the angels, 
who keep falling off the top of the barn, the shepherds with their staves, the wise men with their gifts, they're all there in the nativity scene. I was also reminded of who never makes it into the nativity scene. Who's never there? Herod or his soldiers with their spears. I've heard about 2,000 Christmas songs at this point in the Christmas season. What's today? The 23rd. I have heard people sing about Jesus and Rudolph and Frosty and the Bostonian dude trying to rig up his lights. Have you heard that? Fine. You think it's so easy? You rig up the lights. I've heard us sing about everybody. Do you know who I have not heard about? The moms weeping. In Bethlehem, their dead infant sons in their arms. Now, in one sense, we understand why we don't land here all the time at Christmas. Christmas is a time for smiles and joy and gladness and merriment. And it's hard to get that vibe going, picturing soldiers driving spears through the sides of two-year-old boys. And so much of the time, it is right not to platform this text on Christmas Sunday. But if we never take time to take a good look at this part of the story, if we always push this one to the side, we are robbing ourselves of an opportunity to appreciate just why it is that Christmas, the Advent of the Christ, the birth of Jesus, the incarnation of the Son of God, is such a joyous, glad, merry occasion. So we really shouldn't always sweep this text to the side. And this year, we have no choice. We can't do it. This is because nine days ago now, a hundred miles south east of us in Newtown, Connecticut, New England, a young man got dressed like a soldier and he armed himself like a soldier, literally, and he killed his mom. He shot her four times in the head and then he drove to an elementary school, an elementary school, and he got out his weapons And he killed 26 and 7-year-old children. Eight boys and 12 girls. Most of them were in first grade. It was violent. He shot every one of his victims multiple times. There was a little boy named Noah who was shot 11 times. And there are mothers and there are fathers 100 miles south of us who instead of celebrating Christmas with their children, opening presents, they are literally burying their children over this weekend. Burying them. And so unless we want to crawl under a rock and put our hands over our eyes, you can't help but wrestle with this question this year of all the years. How can we be merry when 20 first graders just got slaughtered in their school? Or the bigger question, 
how can Christmas ever be merry in a world where things like the Sandy Hook Elementary School shootings happen over and over and over again? What it makes us want to do is just call a timeout and say, we're canceling Christmas this year. There is no way for us to have joy in the face of this kind of sorrow and horror and sorrow. I get that. But what I want to press with you today, what I am mandated to press with you today as a pastor and an ambassador of the gospel of Jesus is this. There's a reason that tucked into the texts of the Christmas story is this terrifying narrative of Herod slaughtering children. There's a reason. There's a reason that Scripture records for us the senseless and the violent massacre of innocent boys that attended Jesus' birth. There's a reason that our nativity scenes should have Herod's soldiers in them. And that is to make sure that we do not miss that the grace and the power and yes, the joy of Christmas is not only, not merely a sentimental, warm fire, presence with batteries kind of grace and joy. Christmas is about something deeper than that. The reason that Christmas is merry at all is because it is about the grace And the power of God in not abandoning us and our sin-scarred world, but stepping into it to redeem it. That is what a family in Newtown needs to hear today. So I want to preach in our context. That is what we need someone to remind us of today. So that's what I feel compelled to talk about with you. Would you hear the text again with me with that frame set? See why it's appropriate for today. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem. He killed all the male children in that region who were two years old and under. According to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men and then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah and it was weeping and it was loud And it was lamentation. It was Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted. Because they're gone. Because they are no more. Spirit of God, I pray that for your glory. For our joy. For the joy of those who are yours in Newtown. And every other city that's ever endured a tragedy like this for the joy of these Bostonians who we love. 
I pray that the real good news of Christmas would break through in our hearts this morning through your word and that we would see what it is about Christmas that gives it the adjective Mary. I pray that you'd visit us and do it. Come and do it. Amen. All right, when you read scripture, one of the things that you want to pay attention to is repetition. Repetition. When something gets mentioned a bunch of times, a bunch of times, and then a few more times, it usually means something important. In the case of the Christmas story, one of the things that you realize is everything happens at night. Have you noticed this? The angel visits Mary and Joseph at night. Jesus is born probably in a barn outside of an inn laid in a manger at night. The angels come and make their announcements to the shepherds in the fields at night. The wise men see and then re-see a star and follow it at night. An angel comes to Joseph and warns him to flee Bethlehem at night. Night. What's the takeaway? Christmas happened at night. Christmas was not a daytime, sun shining, all is well event, was it? No. Jesus was not born at two o'clock in the afternoon on a warm, sunny day in a garden outside of a palace. Jesus was born at 2 a.m. He was laid in a cold and drafty barn to a people who were suffering under the violent oppression of an empire. We're supposed to see here that Jesus came to a world that was dark. A world that had been blackened by sin. A world cursed Since Eve and Adam, a world where sickness and sorrow and slaughters and suffering were everywhere. This is the world that Jesus took flesh in. Jesus came to this world's dark. Now, even if you missed the import of that repetition, that this is true becomes explicit in the Herod story. This one is a very dark story. Little background, Herod was the king of Israel. What he was was a puppet and a punk. He did whatever the Roman overlords wanted. And in exchange, he was given power and influence and wealth and prestige. And he guarded his position as king ruthlessly. Josephus, the Jewish historian, doesn't even record this slaughter of the sons of Bethlehem because Herod was responsible for so many other gruesome murders. Herod, like Adam Lanza, murdered within his own family several times anyone who posed a threat. This is Herod. One day, wise men from the east show up at Herod's palace in Jerusalem, and they walk into his courts, and they ask to see the new king. 
who had just been born. They're expecting him to find him in the palace. Things get a little bit awkward right there when they realize, oh, Herod did not just have a baby. There is no newly born king in Herod's palace. Herod is ruthless, but he's no fool. And so he plays the wise men and he says, go find this king. And then after you've worshipped, come and tell me and I will come as worship and worship as well. Come tell me when you find this potential rival to my throne and I will worship too. What is Herod intending? Not to come and worship baby Jesus, but to come and kill And this was supposed to be a very simple kill. One baby, maybe a father and a mother. Easy. 90 seconds. Finished. But the wise men, by the grace and the sovereignty of God, don't participate in Herod's plan. And they skip town without telling Herod where they found Christ, the king, the baby. And Herod is waiting And he's waiting, and he's waiting, and when he hears, uh, sire, they're gone, he snaps. And he calls all his Roman soldiers that he has access to in, and he plans, and he orchestrates this mass murder of children. He tells them, go to Bethlehem. In fact... Go to every village that's around Bethlehem. Find every boy that's there. That looks like he's two years old or younger. And kill them. Herod here is walking in the footsteps of all of the dragons of redemptive history. In the garden, Satan was told, you will strike at the Savior, the Messiah's heel to kill him. And from Cain to Pharaoh to Amalek to Goliath to Saul to Herod. All the sons of the dragon have this same blood lust. One goal. Kill the seed of the woman. Take out the son of David. Eliminate the Christ. He must die. And so Herod's soldiers strap on their uniforms, and take out their weapons. It's not 22 Marlin rifles. It's swords and it's spears. And without any warning, they invade Bethlehem suddenly. And all morning long, Scripture tells us that they hunt out and kill and hunt out and kill and hunt out and kill children. Bethlehem and the surrounding villages were not a big metropolis. We figure that it was about 20 to 25 children who were killed in this slaughter. Same death count as Newtown. And just like in Newtown, there were mothers who woke up that day laughing with their children, reading to their children, playing with their children, smiling and glad. By the end of this day, each of them either watches or hears, or finds out that their sons are gone. That these straight-faced soldiers walked into their home, took them into the street, 
drove spears through their sides, and there they lay, dying. A senseless slaughter. And it was senseless because sin is always, always senseless and irrational. Think about this. We have been given life by a holy, brilliant, glorious God who is for us and loves us. And he has given us a beautiful, righteous, good, moral law that emerges from his character as perfectly holy for us to live by his law for our good. The only sensible thing for a human being to do would be to walk in glad obedience to and love for the Father and the Son and the Spirit at all times, in all things, in all ways. It's the only sensible thing to do. To do anything else would be crazy. And yet, this is all we do. There is no rational explanation for the sin that we commit. It's an identity issue. We are sinners. And so we sin. Now, we don't like that talk generally in Boston. We especially don't like it when we are faced with a horrific tragedy like the one in our text, like the one that we are dealing with. One of the first things we want to do when we're faced with calamities like these in Bethlehem, in Newtown, wherever, is to try and understand, to make sense of it, to get an explanation that satisfies. I totally understand the urge, right? Do you remember Columbine? We were struggling with, why would someone do this? And we came up with, they were bullied. Okay, it gave us a breath. There is a reason that someone would do this. Do you remember Rwanda? This was in our generation. Why is this happening? Racial conflict and tension. Okay, there's an explanation for this behavior. Herod was defending his thrown from a potential rival. At this point, we know that all the theories have been trotted out for what just happened in Connecticut. It was Adam's addiction to violent first-person video games. It was his father's divorcing his mother and abandoning of the family. It was his mental illness and the system failing him. It was his mother's strictness with him. It was the guns. It was the guns. There are other explanations that we try to bring to understand what happened here. Why? Why? The problem is that none of our explanations ever hold, do they? At the end of the day, sin doesn't add up. Being bullied is terrible, but it doesn't translate into gunning down innocent classmates and ending their lives racial sin is terrible it doesn't translate into someone taking a machete to a village of children this is what happened in rwanda having a potential political rival might mess with your life it doesn't translate into slaughtering a village of two-year-olds this is because there is no translating, there is no explaining, there is no sense to sin. 
whether it's the small sins that we commit every day or these devastating, life-altering, history-making sins. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't. This means that after all the investigations are done and everything gets examined and all the funerals are held, we still come down to this. We are a broken race, lost without God in this world. That's it. This is the world that Jesus was born into. There's something desperately broken here. It's been this way for a very long time. Herod's slaughter was not even the first time that this kind of a thing happened to the people of Israel in this land. Matthew writes for us, this was fulfilled, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew doesn't mean that that text of scripture foretold what Herod would do. He means that the coming of Christ occasioned a renewal of that kind of a tragedy and that kind of sadness and mourning. Centuries before Bethlehem, Jeremiah watched as soldiers stormed into the promised land with swords and spears and murdered many of God's people indiscriminately down to the children. He watched this. And it felt that day for Jerusalem like the world had ended. And all that there was left to do was to fall on the ground, to weep and die. And so Matthew referencing Jeremiah gives us this striking image of a woman who's been dead for centuries. Still weeping. Still mourning. As she groans under the weight and the brutality and the darkness of sin. Do you feel this? Beginning outside the garden when Eve mourned the murder of her son Abel at the hands of his brother Cain. All the way through the weeping in Egypt, the weeping in Ramah, this weeping in Bethlehem. The weeping in Auschwitz, the weeping in Rwanda, the weeping this week in Newtown. Long lay the earth in sin and error pining. What comfort can there be when these things happen? Answer. Christmas. Christmas. Something very surprising happens on the back end of that Jeremiah text. Pastor Dan read it. I hope you heard it. After relating all the brokenheartedness and the despair of Rachel weeping for her children, the next words are these. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. And then there is hope for your future. And then Your children shall come back to you. And then 
I will surely have mercy. Can you feel that? Tied to that text? Now you read that and you want to say, Jeremiah, how dare you tell a mother to stop weeping who just lost her son? Her children were taken from her. And Jeremiah says, it's the word of the Lord. I know that it is dark. I know that you just watched some of your children cut down. But God promises to show mercy to his people. There is hope for your future. And that promise from Jeremiah and the many exactly like it in the older covenant is what is being fulfilled at Christmas. My boy Calvin nails it like this. He writes these words. Hear them. By quoting Jeremiah here, Matthew intended to meet a prejudice which might disturb and shake pious minds. As it might be supposed that no salvation could be expected from one on whose account, as soon as he was born, infants were murdered. Or even worse, that it was an unfavorable and disastrous omen. That the birth of Christ kindled a stronger flame of cruelty than usually burns. But as Jeremiah promises a restoration where a nation has been cut off down to her children, so Matthew reminds his readers that this massacre would not prevent Christ from appearing shortly afterwards as the Redeemer of the world. Okay, that's a beautiful theologian writing but, writing, but do you hear what he is saying? Why does Matthew reference Jeremiah? Why reference Rachel and Ramah? Because of the hope that is found at the end of that passage. In other words, hope is where this Herod story is going. Did you notice that in the text from Matthew's gospel, there was one mom who wasn't crying? Did you notice that there was one son who wasn't cut down that day? During the night, an angel warned Joseph to take Mary and the baby and flee south to Egypt. And Jesus was spared. Now, if you stop reading the story right there, you might think, unfair. Unfair. Why did Joseph get the heads up? Imagine telling a mother who just lost her child in Bethlehem that day that God knew what was coming and whisked Jesus out of there. She might say to you, if she could even speak, why didn't he send that angel to my house? Why didn't he spare all of us this suffering and this tragedy? My son just got murdered by a Roman soldier. He's gone. 
Are you saying that God could have saved us, but he only saved Mary's child? What would you say to that mother? You would weep with her. And then you would say, hold on with me. Jesus was not saved so that your sons would die. Jesus was saved so that you and your sons and this world might live. Hold on with me. God is at work here. Hold on. And the good news of the gospel is that God has been at work in a sinful, broken world and was at work when he whisked Jesus away from Herod. Here's the good news. As badly as he tried, Herod could not kill the Son of God. And Jesus, a baby boy born in Bethlehem, flown to Egypt, and then raised in Nazareth, lived a perfectly obedient and sin-free life. Perfectly obeying the law of God on behalf of the people he had been spared to save. For 33 years, there is no violence done to this Jesus. It feels like he's escaped the violence until his last week. Until his time finally comes. And you know those soldiers who missed him in Bethlehem? Finally, they catch up with Jesus. And we realize that Jesus wasn't spared a brutal death, was he? No. We realize that Bethlehem's baby, the son of God, would die like those boys, only in a sense much worse. Here, as a grown man with his full faculties in place over the course of hours, Jesus is pierced. Jesus is crucified. Finally, the spear finds its way through his side. And all of the Herods of history and Satan along with them rejoice. It is finished, they think. We have finally got him. It's finished. And it is finished. But it's not Jesus who is finished. It is them. It is their way of ruling this world. It is sin. It is death that are finished. And Jesus, the baby boy who was born into the darkest of worlds, the baby boy who was born destined to conquer darkness, rises again, victorious over Satan and sin, and yes, death. The darkness is done. Do you know how Scripture talks about the end of our long night? It's very cool. It says that Jesus, risen from the dead, is the bright morning star. Do you know what that star is? It's actually not a star. It's a planet, Venus, bright. Here's what happens. At the very, very end of night, 
before the sun has actually risen, before the first beams of light shoot over the horizon, there's one star left. One star. It's the morning star. It's got one job to announce to this earth that night is over. If it had a voice, it would be shouting, night is over. It's why that star exists. Darkness is doomed. Day is coming. This is who Jesus is. This is why Jesus was spared. He wasn't spared to live a suffering free life. He was spared to die and then rise for you and for me and to light up the world. Christmas is about somebody shouting. The night is over. Darkness is doomed and day is coming. Every year for decades now, there's this pastor who has written Advent poems. His name's John. One of my favorite poems is The Innkeeper. In it, he imagines Jesus paying a visit to Bethlehem just before going to the cross in Jerusalem. He gets to Bethlehem and he finds the inn there and he walks around back to find somebody to talk with. And he sees a man sitting on a stool with an arm missing. And he imagines Jesus going over to the man and saying, Sir, do you remember a young couple giving birth to a son behind your inn about 30 years ago? And the man says, Yes, how can I forget? Then he goes on to tell Jesus this horror story. That he was working in his inn and he looked out of the window and he suddenly saw a battalion of soldiers come up and grab his son and spear him to death in the road in front of the inn. And that they kicked the door of his house down and came for his infant son, but his wife would not let go. And so the soldier's spear drove through mother and child and in the fight he lost his hand on that dark day. He lost more than that. He lost everything. And John writes that as Jesus listens to this story, tears are just running down the Savior's face. Now, I know this is poetry, but he's getting at something there that we can't miss. That Jesus gets the horror of this world. That Jesus gets the effects of sin. That Jesus gets that serial murders happen. He knows. And it breaks his heart in a real way. And he came to do something about it. That's what those tears are. And at the end of the poem, John puts these words in Jesus' mouth. And again, it's poetry, but it's backed up with the trajectory of Scripture. And Jesus says to this father, I am the boy that Herod wanted to destroy. You gave my parents room to give me life. And then God let me live and took your wife. Ask me not why the one should live 
and the other die. God's ways are high. And you will know in time. But I have come to show you what the Lord prepared that night. You made a place for heaven's light. In two weeks they will crucify my flesh. But mark this, sir. I will rise three days from the dead and place my foot upon the head of him who brings such death. And I will raise with life and breath your wife, your sons, and give them back to you with everything the world can store and you will reign forevermore. That's what Christmas is about. You guys, if all that Christmas is good for is when everything is fine in the world, what's it good for? We got pop music for that. We got Joel Osteen for that. We got Disneyland for that. But if Christmas is good for our darkest nights and our deepest fears, And our most horrific losses, Christmas is something special. And it is. Christmas is about God, who didn't have to, but chose to. Stepping into a badly broken, sin-marred world to overcome the curse. And so Christmas is not only merry when things are all bright and snowy and presents everywhere sweet. No. Christmas is merry because there's an answer to the fall in the gospel. It's the only reason I got for you why we could possibly be merry in a world where Newtown shootings happen. Friday night was the darkest night possible for those families, for that city. Lying on the ground, weeping, inconsolable like Rachel, like these mothers, like some of you have. Knowing that something is wrong in the world. Yes. It's the first thing to realize in tragedy. Something's wrong. But please don't stop there. Remember Christmas. Remember Jesus. Remember the cross. Remember the empty tomb. Seven Mile Road, the darkness is ending. It's ending. It's not over yet. There will continue to be sorrow and suffering in this life. But hear me, the morning star is shining. It is. The day hasn't fully come yet, but day is coming. It is. A new heaven and a new earth where there will be no sin and there will be no death and there will be no need even for a son, is the way John says it. Because Jesus, in all of his glory, in all of his love, in all of his justice, in all of his grace, is just going to light up the world. And every wrong will be made right, all of them. And every tear will be wiped away, all of them. And every unanswered question that we have will find resolution in the depths of the wisdom and the grace of God. Because of Christmas. Because unto us a child is born and a son is given 
and the government of the universe will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty, God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Think about that. No more violence. No more killing. No more death. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From that time forth forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is what Christmas is. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you get sin and its effects and its sorrow. Thank you that at Christmas we have the infinitely holy God in sheer grace stepping into the mire and the muck and the night, the long, dreary night that we fashion for ourselves to save us. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you that you spared Jesus that night so that you could send him to a cross to die a death for our sins and to rise for our life. Thank you that there is hope in Christ. Would you set our hearts the next 48 hours to revel in that together? Hear my prayer and answer. Amen.